Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. Each week, we talk about the craft beer business, pop culture, and whatever else comes to mind. I'm here with my co-host, JWB's Ops Manager, Maria Cabre. Hi, Maria. Hello. Our first guest this week grew up in downtown Boston. When his father passed away, he left him a dilapidated house in coastal Maine. Our next guest knew what he had to do. He moved to Maine and began to lovingly restore the house without any prior renovation or construction training. That experience, along with the encouragement from friends he made in his new community, led him to create a wildly successful gastropub in an empty parking lot. About a year later, he opened a craft brewery in his new hometown. Both businesses had exceeded expectations and garnered much acclaim. His unique beers are among the most sought after in the state of Maine and at beer festivals around the country. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Jay Gray. How you doing, man? Hey, what's up, guys? How are you? We're doing good, doing good. How is Maine? Maine is good, man. It's hot today. We got hit with like a not really tropical storm over the weekend. I think we got maybe 15 mile an hour winds. I think a couple of picnic chairs fell over, but that's about it. So <laughs> we survived. Was that a yeah. uh, was that tropical storm uh, Henry? I think it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. So nice. anytime uh, you know having food for thought, which is an all outdoor restaurant, and having the brewery, which is big outdoor space, it's always a worrisome issue where you're worried about you know safety of staff and customers. But you know we've never closed since we've opened. We've never run into issues, and it was fine. Just some rain. That's about it. So when did we first meet? I think you came down with the Barreled Soul guys, right? What was that? Uh, yeah. Two years ago for Wakefest. Uh, I think now it's been three years. Three years. So, yeah, it's been three years. Yeah, Matt and Chris from Barrel Souls brought me down to Wakefest three years ago, and uh, we met then. And uh, and then we came back uh, two years ago now to do the Hangover event, um, you know, to do That's some right. food there for you guys, which was – that was a whole crazy situation where we, uh, we basically were in Pittsburgh. I don't think you knew, but we wound up doing an event with Hop Culture the day of Wakefest in Pittsburgh – and we served 1,200 people in Pittsburgh on a Saturday night, finished the event at 6 o'clock, went to the airport, flew to Miami, stayed up all night, did all our food prep in our Airbnb, and then <laughs> did the food event at the Hangover event literally that Sunday. Right. And I guess like Jack or somebody had told you, and you were like, you were in Pittsburgh yesterday? And I was like, yep, we were. Yeah, you guys are and, animals. Uh, Absolute yeah. animals. So I know quite a few, you know, craft beer breweries and owners come from restaurant business, but your story is pretty unique. I mean, you had you own and operate a successful gastropub, you know, Food for Thought in Algonquin, Maine. What gave you the idea of starting a brewery? Uh, I mean, weren't you busy enough with the restaurant? <laughs> uh, so I guess kind of taking you back to the beginning of the story. So we uh, we basically we opened Food for Thought two and a half years ago in 2019 um and it basically was an abandoned parking lot it hadn't been anything for 10 years and i had this idea to open this outdoor restaurant and gastro pub based around craft beer and uh the months leading up to opening we traveled around we went to your festival we went to uh kyle from horace's festival we went to uh southern grist anniversary and built a lot of really great relationships with people in the craft beer world and i knew this is what i wanted to do you know, I have a lot of great people that have inspired me to, to do this. And that's what kind of led up to it. And we used, you know, Food for Thought as a platform to kind of help support our friends. You know, the southern Maine area outside of Portland was doing some craft beer, but not like all the way. They weren't pouring you guys, the J, you know, the Burley Oaks, the, you know, Kyle from Horace, the real, you know, upper echelon craft beer. And uh, it was something that I just fell in love with. And we used food for thought and we had a couple of great years. And then once we found the space, we decided we could go and, and do this, you know. So, I mean, you also tapped a bartender to be your head brewer. Tell me a little bit about Abe and uh, when did you realize he was the man for the job? 
Yeah, Abe, uh, Abe I've known for years. He's super talented as uh, the head bartender at the Levitt Theater in town. And uh, he had, you know, a little bit of brewing experience, but no head brewing experience whatsoever. And uh, basically when I met him, I was like, you know, hey, you know, I think you're the guy. And I told him, you know, think of it as like really big cocktails. Don't think of it as making beer. Just think of it as you're making real big drinks. Of course. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it took a little bit of convincing. He's, he's still the head bartender. So he works full time at the Levitt Theater. And then also he works as the head brewer here. Um, so he's insanely busy working 90, 100 hours a week. And uh, he's been doing such a good job. I'm super excited to for you guys to try the beers we sent out to you, which you should get Friday. Oh, no, we're, we're super stoked for the collab, man, and whatever else you're going to send down to us. I mean, even the beers that you poured at Wakefest this year were, were awesome, man. I know it was very well received by everybody that attended the festival. So, I mean, uh, we're very stoked to have that coming down, man. I really appreciate that. Um. So I know you've done a lot of shows and stuff like that. And can you tell us a little bit about the brewery now? Like, where did you draw inspiration for, like, the build-out and everything? And what kind of capacity are you guys running at now? Yeah, so the brewery uh, is a three-and-a-half-barrel brew house. And we have six seven-barrel fermenters that we double batch into. And then we also have four one-barrel fermenters as well. Um, and a lot of our inspiration, you know, without – tooting, you know, your own horn comes from, you know, you um, and Maria. You know, I've always been blown away by what you guys do. Um, Jamie and Jared from Southern Grist, you know, they've they've always been making really cool stuff. Dino from Vitamin C, Kyle from Horace, you know, JC from Trillium. You guys are the ones that really have inspired us to do this. And I think so many breweries, you know, look at what you did. You You opened up in Miami. And we're like, I don't care if it's 100 degrees. I'm going to make pastry stouts. And I was like, that's <laughs> such a cool thing to do. And uh, we kind of looked at it and we were like, let's not be a brewery that opens and offers eight IPAs. Right. You know, there's every brewery does that. And I was like, let's do something different. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really into kind of the nostalgic nature of beer, um, the same way we do at Food for Thought. You know, we do this adult Capri Sun that kind of makes people feel like they're a kid again. And I wanted to do that with beer. And I think by doing these candy beers and kind of pulling on the nostalgic nature of, uh, you know, being kind of young again, but also being an adult because you're drinking um, really pulls at people's heartstrings and makes them feel a really special way. I would agree with that. I mean, that's that's definitely an avenue we kind of hit too with some of the things that we do. I mean, look at the collab that we did. We brought Chucky Chucky out, which I love so much. I'm such a big fan of Chucky. Um, I'm excited for you guys to get these, but this is, you know, our version. He's so scary. He is so scary. It's yeah. I love it. So for the listeners, just in case, um, Jay and, us we yes. collaborated yeah. on uh, a sour beer we brewed one batch here and he brewed the other batch in um in maine and it's called redheaded stepson and there is a chucky doll in the brewery that i was scared with about two years ago for halloween it was put in the back of my car as a prank by john <laughs> and jack because they thought it was hilarious yes it was not hilarious uh and so we came up with this beer Yes, it's uh, and it is a play on uh, strawberry belts. Strawberry rhubarb. Uh, yeah, but we also use strawberry sour belts. In yes, the beer, we did. So. Those are yes. so good. Yeah. Yes, they're amazing. Yeah. Um, how did you settle on uh, Cape Netic as your location up there, man? What kind of so, drew you to that? Yeah, so I live five minutes away. So basically, <laughs> my uh, yeah, my yeah. my upbringing. So for people that don't know, I grew up in downtown Boston, born and raised in Boston. And uh, I'd always spent my summers up here in Maine. And uh, unfortunately, when I was about 15, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and my father passed away. And uh, I inherited this house up in Maine and it was kind of falling apart and kind of needed to be, you know, kind of renovated. And uh, that's that's what I've spent the last five years doing. You know, I when we opened Food for Thought while I was building that restaurant, we were renovating our house. And uh, Matt and Chris from Barreled Souls, my dear friends, took me in and Matt let me live in his basement for a month. And then he kicked me out. And then Chris let me live in his guest house for three months. And we renovated the home and renovated the restaurant. And, uh, you know, we're able to open because of that. And this space came available. The land became available uh, in October. 
and we purchased the land and literally in six months put up an entire building, built a brewery from the ground up and opened June 15th. So we've been open now for nine weeks and it's been a crazy, crazy trip, man, to not ever know how to open a brewery, not to ever know how to build a building. You learn a lot as you go along and it's been uh, one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. I'm sure the community has helped a ton. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely an awesome story to see like growing, I mean, organically, like you said, but just doing it all from the ground up, man, and not really having that experience before and being able to pull this off and do all this. I mean, it's, it's an awesome sight to see for sure. Thank you, man. That means a lot. And I mean, I will tell you, you know, having you guys as a resource, having Dino from vitamin C as a resource, having these people that, you know, I look up to so much being able to just send a text message and, send a phone call to someone like there's just, it's craziness when you get a glycol chiller and then it's 20 grand. And then you're like, well, the install should be 1200 bucks. And then right. you find out the install is 20 grand. You're like, that doesn't <laughs> yes. make sense to me. What are you talking about? No, you never, and, uh, you never calculate all the, you, you think you have a number in your mind of what it's going to cost to open a brewery. And then you blow right past that. <laughs> it's it's yeah. crazy. Take, take the number and triple it and then add, add two more to it. Oh, you absolutely. Know? So what's the story behind the name of the brewery? Give us a little background. Yeah, so the, uh, the name Odd by Nature, which I got tattooed on myself because that's what I do. I get all our businesses tattooed on me because, awesome. you know, you got to commit. You got to be like, I'm into this. Of course. Um, you know, the, the idea of odd by nature was just the idea of being different. My whole life, I've always felt kind of like just somebody who's been a little different, as I'm sure everybody can relate to and, and feel like you're trying to find your place in this world. And, you know, this is something where I, I when I came up with the name, it just it kind of stuck with me. I was like, that's how I feel. And also just in terms of the nature aspect, we're up in Maine. You know, I live in the middle of the woods, even though I live close to the brewery. And uh, we came up with this idea of making these kind of different out there beers, but also encompassing the nature aspect of, you know, using ingredients that come local um, and also finding out different ways to incorporate nature into our beers. That's awesome, man. So kind of like, you know, I always reference like when I started up, I always wanted to brew beers outside of the box. You know, I didn't want to stick to doing an IPA, an Amber, a Hef. I mean, we do those beers, but that wasn't what was going to, you know, it's not what was going to define the brewery. I wanted to be known for doing stouts and fruited sours and just off-the-wall stuff, you know what I mean? And I know you, you are focusing, like, you know, ice cream IPAs, candy beers, pastry stouts. I mean, take me down that. I mean, that's, I mean, were those really underrepresented in Maine? I mean, I don't think anybody up there is brewing those kind of beers. No, I mean, like, so in our area, you know, we're 45 minutes south of Portland, but we might as well be on another planet or another state. Like, we're just so far removed from the craft beer scene in Portland, where obviously, you know, people think Maine, people think Bissell, um, you know, Pete and Noah have done such an amazing job putting Maine on the map in terms of, you know, being a craft beer destination. And then so many people after them have continued to, you know, follow that trend. And obviously Allagash, you know, setting the trend even before them. Um, and really, you know, like, like I said, we wanted to do something different in Southern Maine. We were like, Hey, if we're going to be not surrounded by a million breweries, if we're not going to be in Portland, we need to do something that's going to bring people in to the area to experience what we do. And, you know, what we do isn't for everyone. You know, right now we have our collab, which is a strawberry sour belt beer. We have our blue gummy shark sour. Um, we have uh, faux pas, which is a green guava candy, the Vietnamese little candies that you would get uh, at a Vietnamese restaurant. We turn those into a beer. You know, we have green beers and, and pink beers and stuff like that. And it's it's something that I think is the people who get it really get it and they're really into it. Yes. Um, and I think that's something that's really special. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're talking to Jay Gray of Odd Nature Brewing. Where do you think you're drawing your inspiration from for, for these beers? I mean, would you date it all back to childhood, or are you uh, kind of, you know, just shooting from the hip sometimes on some of these, yeah, these beers? Yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, in terms of the, you know, after faux beer we do with the Vietnamese uh, guava candies, you know, my... Uh, my, my chef, uh, Mike and, and Brad are very heavy into Vietnamese, uh, food and my girlfriend's Vietnamese. And in terms of, you know, getting a big bowl of pho, you know, that would always be where we'd have our meetings. We would go to a Vietnamese restaurant and have pho. 
And you'd always get those green guava candies after those and have those. And it was something where it was such a unique candy where, you know, everyone's been doing everything in terms of different kinds of beers, but I've never seen anyone use those in a beer. Um, and kind of through innovation and also because of necessity, our ports on the top of our seven barrels are so small that doing the bags and putting candies in to be able to get the flavor in just wasn't an option. So we discovered this kind of from our cooking background, rendering them into a simple syrup. And that's what we've been doing with our beers. So even with redheaded stepson, we took the sour belts, rendered them into a syrup, uh, a, a simple syrup, and then folded them into the beer which twofold has been very helpful. It, I think, carries the flavor over really distinctly and also helps with loss where you're not getting more loss because the, the candy isn't absorbing the beer. Right. No, know? yeah, that's awesome. I mean, so really, you, I mean, it's really from whatever's been in, around in your environment and in kind of like what we do. For me, it was always, I mean, it, watching the cooking channel or, you know, reading magazine, food magazines and looking at, dessert recipes or different you know just drawing off a different food really for me is what kind of pushed a lot of the inspiration for a lot of our beers so i can see i mean it's kind of the same background that you guys got kind of got going on as well but you guys go beyond that you guys also have a beer cocktail program yeah how has that gone over and and is that is it pretty popular up there (laughs) yeah so we originally when we opened the plan was to do uh beer cocktails from the beginning And what happened was they have this weird archaic rule in Maine because I own a restaurant, I can't have a full restaurant license at the brewery. So I actually had to put a barrel of beer at the restaurant food for thought and license the restaurant as a brewery so I could get a full liquor license at the brewery. (laughs) So now that we went through that process with the Department of Agriculture and the TTB, we now have a full liquor license and we're pouring full liquor, full beer. We're able to support our friends too and have uh, guest lines, which is super exciting um, and able to pour our collabs as well. And we're going to have a whole wine list curated as well, um, which I'm really, really excited about. And yeah, again, it's, it's, I think of a brewery or a restaurant as just a place where people come to enjoy themselves. That's all it really is. And you want people to have a good time. And if someone comes in and goes, I'm not into craft beer as much as I would love for them to be into it. If they want a glass of wine, let's give them a great glass of wine. If somebody wants a rum and Coke, let's give them a rum and Coke. It's not my place to force what we're doing onto them. It's my job to kind of guide them along this process and make them enjoy their stay while they're at the brewery. That's awesome. I mean, I know there's been kind of a resurgence in craft beer cocktails. So, I mean, it's it's definitely great, I think, to have options. When we first started, we had wine here as an option. But it did not, I mean, it definitely did not fly. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it, it would sit around and I think someone would just turn. Yeah. If, <laughs> if, you know, if, it was like, okay. If you're familiar with the area in Miami that we're in, well, Miami in general is a very uh, either cocktail or spirit driven yeah. city. Um, so yeah. we get a lot of people walking in ask for, asking for a Corona and a tequila shot. And we're just like, uh, did you not read the sign outside that said J-Way? Gramps is right next door. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. exactly. Right, you know, exactly. you know. But, I mean, at the same time, when we had the draw of inspiration to start doing slushies and even the, you know, the soft serve, I mean, those have been a hit. I mean, but it's giving people yeah. other options. So I think it's awesome that you give them that wide kind of plethora of options to choose from to keep drawing them in. I mean, it's yeah, a great and with the uh, with the cocktails, we're also not just simply doing, you know, hey, beer with um, with spirits. We're also doing we do this hop tea where we make a tea with uh, hops infused in there, um, which is very, very cool and kind of gives the essence of it. We have a, uh, a stout cocktail where we're using our spent grain in the cocktail as well. So we're kind of thinking a little bit uh, further in terms of, hey, what are these processes that kind of define craft beer and trying to use those in the cocktails to kind of give a, a different twist on it as well. That's awesome. I mean, it's it's definitely thinking outside the box, dude. I mean, that's I mean, that's I'm trying to think. I mean, it's definitely outside the box. And it's uh, I mean, to be applauded because you're still involving somehow, even though it may not be directly beer poured into the cocktail, it's still bringing elements, whether it be the grain, the hops into those cocktails which to me is is an amazing thing so i know maine is experiencing a, a brewery boom you know i think uh last count it was like 150 breweries what, yep. what what's the relationship between the breweries up there is it cooperative or competitive like yeah 
I mean, I think I think the biggest reason uh, why I wanted to get into the beer industry versus the restaurant industry is it's a very different uh, mindset. You know, the restaurant industry, for the most part, and I'm generalizing, but a lot of times you can open a hundred miles away from another restaurant, and when you open, you know, someone will be like, "Oh, I hope you do well," and then they turn their back and they're like, "Ah, screw that guy. I hope he fails." <laughs> Whereas yeah. you could open yeah. literally in the same building as another brewery, and they will be so helpful. Um, you know, Mike, my friend who owns Definitive and Dylan, you know, Mike helped me fill out our TTV licenses, like opened up his computer, showed me all of his information and walked me through how to fill out a liquor license application because I had never done it before. And, you know, between them and also uh, Bella Flower that just opened in Portland, too, um, we talked with them. And because we both opened this year, my idea was to brew this beer called Class of 2021. And my idea was to put on their can, our staff, but all our high school photos and on (laughs) our can, their staff of all of our high school photos. And just to show solidarity of us supporting each other in the state of Maine. Um, And it's really inspirational. It's it's just it's really nice to have people that support what we do and uh, be here for us and, and always be one phone call away. So being up in Maine, I mean, do you guys do you guys experience like a a seasonality up there with business or are you guys pretty much banging all year long? No. So yeah, food for thought, uh, being an outdoor restaurant, we're open from May through October and, uh, we're a 40 seat restaurant. And one of the biggest secrets that people don't know is how busy we actually are. So in, you know, basically nine months, two years worth of business, we've done over a hundred thousand customers in a 40 seat restaurant. Wow. We do, yeah, it's, we do about 500 people a day through the door at a 40-seat restaurant. It's insanely busy. That's crazy. And, uh, and then it closes. And then in October, it kind of dies off. And the brewery is our first business where a big part of why I wanted to open it was to be able to give the staff year-round employment and also work towards offering them, you know, better wages, offering them a year-round home, offering them health insurance, which we're working towards for next year. Um, to be able to keep great people. I think our industry is really facing um, kind of a a different time that's coming on. And I want to be able to adapt with the times and be ahead of the curves and be there to support them so we can keep good people. Yeah, I think think right now during going through the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and still into this year, I think the service industry is in a very rough time for finding people that want to work. And then keeping yeah. those people. And then I think you're absolutely right. I, I, it's a very hard option to find good people, let alone just keep those people. So I think there has to be, like, you have to be able to offer those people options, you know. And yep. it's kind of like sweeten the deal, I would say. Not just that. It's the people that are going out now. They're, we've seen, like, a lack of tipping or much more self-righteous, uh, entitled kind of behavior from the customer. Absolutely. And, you know, us service workers, people in the industry, we're, we're putting ourselves and our health and our families when we come home in, in it, what could be a difficult position. So offering those things and making the workplace somewhere that they feel safe and that they feel that they're going to have the backing of ownership is, I mean, there's no value on that. It's just... It's amazing. Yeah, I agree. No, I think that's been something where in terms of uh, customers, you've seen, we've seen a little bit more of a angrier entitled customer this summer. Um, that's been a little bit of a more difficult thing to deal with. And I think the biggest thing is just kind of killing these people with kindness. I think there's always going to be people, you never know the person that walks in the door, what they're going through in their personal life. And I think while taking it out on the staff is obviously not the right way to go about it as an owner or as a manager, the best thing we can do is step right up to the plate, walk right up to them and deal with the problem head on and trying to make them understand kind of the situation. And you're never going to be able to convince everyone and turn everyone around, but at least we can try. And afterwards, making sure the staff understands that, hey, it's not your fault. It's that person that's actually the one that is going through something, you know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. So now that I, you've only been open for nine weeks, what do you see your plan down the road? I mean, do you see an expansion? Are you are you looking at a bigger space maybe in thoughts perceived down the road? I mean, is that in the plans? 
Never. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to. And like, I know everyone says, Oh, I'm not going to get bigger. And no, we, uh, I don't, you know, this is home. I'm five minutes away from where I live. Um, we have six, seven barrels. We have space to add two more sevens and a three and a half. And that's it. That's going to be our max plan. We don't ever plan on distributing beer. We're going to sell it all out of the tap room. When we, you know, when we canned our collab, we had 50 cases. We sold through 40 of it in the first four days and it'll be gone this week. And that's how I want because it's fresh. It's cold. It's exactly the way I would want the product to be, especially with both of our names on it. I think that's the best way to deliver the product. I don't want, I see too many of my friends beer sitting on shelves, sitting warm. And then all of a sudden somebody has it. It's a bad representation of their brand. It's a bad representation of craft beer. And then somebody sours on them. And I just don't think that's the right way to go about doing it. I think it people get into a situation where they have to for the, the sense of necessity. But for us being small, I don't want to ever go in that direction. I do have one final question for you. Yeah, absolutely. Who makes the best lobster roll in Maine? Who makes the best what? Lobster roll in Maine. Oh, the best lobster <laughs> roll? I don't know. It's tough, man. I would say that I would say us and high roller are probably neck and neck. Okay. Um, you know, high roller, what they do in terms of their sauces and, uh, you know, their, their fresh Maine lobster is incredible. Um, I think what we do that's very cool is putting our candied bacon on our lobster rolls is something very different that not everybody does. And that's out of the box. So I would say it's, it's a matter of preference. I would say high roller, one, us, one, a, or us, one, and then one, a, I would say it's a tie for first place. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge everybody that's listening as well. Go to Maine and try both of them. Also go to odd by nature and drink all the beers while you're there. Cause this, they make great beers. We could also go. Uh, we could also go and try the, the candy. Bacon. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. You guys have to get your asses up to Maine. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, this has been a, a long time coming and, yep. and we would just love to have you up here just to show you the place. I think Maine is a very, very special area. Um, you know, we're walking distance to the beach you know, our beach was just, Ogunkwa Beach was just rated fourth best beach in the country. Oh. It's just such a beautiful area that's so scenic and so quiet in terms of the town um, that it makes you feel like you're really part of the area. And it's very, very special. And I'm really happy to call it home. Awesome. I, I'd be happy to go to the beach. I don't know if I'd go in the water because, you know, we're used sharks. to like 80 degree water. Oh, in the water colder. Colder and sharks. Freezing cold, man. But uh, it's it's warmer now at times. So it, the best time to come is September. That's as warm okay. as the water's ever going to be. Well, I appreciate it, brother. Hey, and I really appreciate your time, man. And thank yeah. you for coming on the show, man. Thank it's you been so awesome. much. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you guys Thanks, so Jay. much. Appreciate right, it. Man. Later. See you guys. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest left a lucrative yet demanding career on Wall Street to pursue her passion for creating the perfect chocolate. After spending two years obsessively trying to recreate chocolate that she tasted in Paris on a business trip, she took the leap to open Miami's first chocolate factory. Escasito Chocolates has garnered national acclaim for their bean-to-bar chocolates, which are made from cacao beans, which are ethically sourced. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Carolina Quijano, a.k.a. the Chocolate Empress. How are you doing? Good in yourself. Not too bad, not too bad. I also have Maria here with me. Hi. Hey, Maria. Thanks for having me. Of course. So you have a great backstory. You were working for a firm on Wall Street and flying about 150,000 miles a year. In 2011, while in Paris on business, you tasted some chocolate that changed your life. What happened next after that? Yeah, so I took the uh, the conventional route, and I went from uh, having healthcare and a steady job, and uh, fell in love with chocolate, and decided the uh, the next logical path was to drop out of corporate life <laughs> and uh, start a chocolate factory, like one does. <laughs> so you, yeah. You- I think there's a lot of uh, similarities between, uh, you know, craft beer folks and and even the coffee space. A lot of folks who have uh, perhaps no background or no experience in in the food business, uh, you know, just having like a great passion for for a product. In, in my case, being chocolate and and deciding that this was their their life path. I mean, it, it's actually pretty funny because I was a CPA for 15 years and left corporate life to open a brewery which you know 
I kind of jumped in a different path than than that. I went to actually I quit my job and went to work for another brewery to kind of learn from the the ground up. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's still kind of like the same kind of trajectory. It's pretty funny. What chocolate was it in Paris that you tasted that kind of changed your your whole your whole perception there? Do you remember? Yeah, so I, I, still, I wasn't even supposed to be there. I was in between visiting clients, and I just took the weekend off and stumbled upon this little farmer's market. So it was this, like, no-name brand, uh, just a, a tiny spot, and it was it was hot chocolate that's pretty simple uh, but well-made, just very, you know, straightforward ingredients, um, and it, it, I'm Colombian, so it brought me back to like Colombian hot chocolate and like the simplicity of it. And it doesn't have to be anything like over the top, but it can taste amazing. And, and it took me back to like my childhood and just this notion of a better made product with just real ingredients and how amazing it can be without overcomplicating it. And uh, I, I mean, I, I've always been a, a fan of chocolate. Never seen it in, course, in yeah. a different way than just a consumer, but that was just like I became obsessed. Um, and I remember, like, just I couldn't stop thinking about it and and really wanting to replicate that. So, can you talk to us about how you like did you start experimenting in your apartment in, in New York? I mean, uh, did you run your first you know test batches in like that studio apartment? I mean, were they how did those yeah. first test batches really work out for you? Yeah, so I would say the path to making great chocolate is you've got to make a lot of shitty chocolate at first. <laughs> uh, so that's just that's just the truth. And uh, so yeah, the, I mean the the plane ride back, it, it, I was just like you know jotting down notes of to what I wanted to do. But um, every day after work for for a good year and a half, I was just tinkering around with chocolate. Chocolate's very, it seems very simple, but it's extremely complicated to work with. Uh, so I burnt a more chocolate than I ever would like to admit to at the beginning. And, um, there's a lot of science behind chocolate. And, and that was like the first thing that I came to realize that I, as I was messing everything up and I, I bought probably more chocolate than I like to admit to every brand possible to like taste out and see what was different and started experimenting with ingredients and, I made a, a lot of weird things and then eventually landed on something I really enjoyed um, and started to, in true corporate fashion, made um, Excel spreadsheets um, <laughs> for all my focus groups to have uh, and give me notes and give me feedback on what I was doing. Um, so, yeah, it started just just with hot chocolate. And then I learned how to make marshmallows. Um, like to go with the hot chocolate, uh, which actually resembled like cocaine bricks back then. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of my friends actually left them behind in a restaurant. And we're pretty sure somewhere someone believes we're drug dealers in New York. So, uh, <laughs> but that, that was the, the very little humble start to, um, to where it started out. Um, and during that time, you know, started to kind of save up and with the idea that later down the road, this would become, uh, you know, a project for me or, or a business for me. I tell John all the time that tempering chocolate is one of the hardest techniques that you have to work on. When I did pastry, it was one of the most tedious things. But when you finally got it and you learn to master tempering chocolate, I mean, right? you can't stop that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I walked into it. I'm like, yeah, just smell chocolate. And then, you know, just set it. And they're like, oh, no, it's it's very complicated and you have to kind of dive into the science and what's going on with it. But once you've got it, then you, you know, you're kind of, you can master the chocolate versus uh, the chocolate mastering you, which a lot of times it does. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know a lot about chocolate. I mean, I take my advice from Maria since she has a background in pastry. (laughs) Wise choice to take advice. from Maria. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) She has all the background in that do you, I mean, do you remember that moment when you decided to take the leap from making hot chocolate and marshmallows from your studio apartment to, you know, also leaving a lucrative career in finance to opening a chocolate factory, basically? Do you remember that time? Yeah, it was, um, it wasn't like a specific, like aha moment. It was more like drawn out. I, I'm more on the cautious side in terms of, you know, I, I kind of built this career and, you know, kind of invested a lot of, of, buy stuff into it. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was very cautious about it. 
when I initially was like, okay, I have the recipe. I want to start with just this hot chocolate. The idea was that it was going to be a side hustle initially. And I was trying to find a co-packer to manufacture it. And I went down that path, you know, at, at food conferences and contacting various manufacturers. And what I kept stumbling upon was the type of chocolate that they were using to manufacture was not at the quality that I wanted it to be and that the ultimate product needed for it to be, because that's the star really like it's, it's the chocolate. Um, so it was at that moment that I was like, all right, well, if I really want to make this product and the quality that I want, then I'm going to have to get into the manufacturing. And then it was kind of like the second realization of, okay, this is bigger than just, you know, funding a co-pack or something like that. It's, it's actually taking on manufacturing from start to finish in order to get this, product that I'm envisioning. So why did you choose Miami as your location? Yeah. So I'm not, I always say I'm not from anywhere. I, I grew up all over the place. Uh, I came to Miami for, for undergrad and, and I stayed to work. And uh, so Miami was something that was very special to me. Um, you know, it, it I love the diversity um, in terms of, of this type of business. I felt like, you know, back then Miami was this emerging food scene that really had the opportunity in a landscape for something that was new and different and uh, that could be receptive, uh, although a little bit hard because it's it was still and is still growing. But um, I, I absolutely love the opportunity that um, in this kind of vibrant city to open something like this that really didn't exist. So um, it, it seemed like the natural fit, I think for us. And, uh, we tend to, we do a lot of plays on like Latin flavors and it just felt like the natural choice, uh, in terms of the, the diversity that exists in the city. Well, I'm very thankful that you are local. Trust me <laughs> you know, for all the, for all the necessities that we need, you know, the great quality beans that you give to us. I mean, I'm very, very excited to have you local and not having to outsource it outside of Miami. It just adds more to the complexity and, us being able to source local ingredients that are very high quality. So I do thank you that you did move here. I love forming local partnerships and you guys have been great. So always appreciate the opportunity to, to work with other local minded people. Absolutely. You talk about honoring the natural flavor of the beans. How is that philosophy like reflected in the chocolate itself? Would you say? Yeah. So one of our big philosophies is a lot of times uh, when we eat chocolate, I always ask people like, what does chocolate taste like? And the first thing that comes to mind is chocolate tastes like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that's the, the truth. Most of the chocolate we eat is blended. Uh, so one of the things that we do is similar to coffee. We do single origins. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that depending on where the cocoa beans are grown, they taste different. Um, I always compare it to like varieties of apples and how apples can be so diverse. You can have tart and sweet and just everyone has like a favorite apple. Um, And those same differences that you see in genetics, in, uh, you know, flavors are present in cocoa beans too. So the way that we handle it is, by not blending it, we can really highlight the terroir of where it's coming from, the flavors. We have some that taste like raisins. We have some that are fudgy. Um, we have one that tastes like raspberries, like citrus. Um, and so, you know, that the uniqueness of being able to do them in single origin batches really brings that out um, in a way that you can't really have when you have mass-produced chocolate that's just all put together. Um, and the second unique thing that we do, um, compared to like mass produced chocolate is we tend to medium roast. A lot of times people always say like, Oh, dark chocolate's super bitter. And the reason for that similar to like in coffee is, uh, they tend to over roast it and they basically just burn the hell out of the beans, uh, in both industries. And so all you taste is like this burnt product. So we medium roast it. We're working with really just two ingredients in our chocolate. We use cocoa beans and then organic cane sugar, and that's it. There's no vanilla to mask it. There's nothing. Like if the bean is not good, that's it. Like the chocolate's not going to be good. So we're just trying to, you know, honor what's where it's coming from uh, by really treating it nicely, uh, not having to mask it with stuff, and that naturally just brings out what's what's in the soil produced, basically. That's pretty interesting as well because 
with the quality of beans that we use, we have one supplier, and he's a good friend of mine out of California, but I always prefer his beans, and he, he does as well, to medium roast his beans because, as I see with any kind of heavy roasting, you get a lot of acrid bitterness that goes along with that. And it's funny that you say you only medium roast for the same reasons, is to avoid that bitterness. But it's like when I first opened, like when we first got your first box of cacao nibs and i opened the bag i mean it smelled just like chocolate fudge brownies fudge i mean it brownies, was un- yeah it was unbelievable i mean like i i've we've dealt with a lot of different cacao nibs over the years and yours by far was the best i mean the the just the aroma and then obviously that translates to the flavor that carries over the beers but it's pretty interesting to hear that you know that totally. you only you know medium roast so you know on another core value of escasito is your commitment to ethical mm-hmm. sourcing. We hear that term quite a bit in the world of coffee. How does that ethical sourcing look, you know, in the chocolate world? It's super similar. I mean, there's there's such, you know, um, similitude between the two industries, but chocolate is uh, unfortunately kind of the diamond of the food world, and a lot of folks don't realize that most of the chocolate we eat, uh, not to get on a sad note, but, you know, most farmers live off a dollar a day, uh, most of the chocolate we eat, even mass produced, is produced by very small farm holders. There's a lot of child slavery. There's a lot of exploitation. It's it's an industry similar to coffee that's been uh, through colonialism and a lot of different uh, long history has suffered and been exploitative towards its people. And in the last 20 years or so, there's, uh, you know, kind of disruptors in the industry you know, we're not going to abide by what's done in the past. Um, we work directly uh, with co-ops and even family-owned farms. So not only does it create more sustainable business model for the folks involved, but on top of that, it gives them capital to reinvest in the, in the plants and their processing. Because uh, a lot of times when you go to what we call kind of like conventional farms, um, that maybe are like the stock traded ones. They don't have the money, the infrastructure to reinvest into their farms. So the product suffers. And that's why you get a lot of really poorly treated, um, you know, cocoa in the end. It tastes acidic. It, ta- it doesn't taste great. And uh, cacao requires fermentation um, on the farm level. Yes. So once they harvest it, they have to ferment you have to dry it. It's a very scientific process. Like a lot of the farms that we work have scientists on hand that are monitoring it. I mean, and that comes from that infrastructure of having an actual business versus just trying to survive your day to day. So it not only is good for the model and what it should be, but it's also good in the end for our product because uh, it's like anything, right? Like when you have more capital to reinvest into your business, you're hopefully going to do a better job and, and be able to to do things uh, with more quality. Um, and I think that's, that's what we believe in and, and what other folks in the industry believe in too. And I think that um, it, it benefits everyone. So I think it's, um, it's the reason why we source that way. And we, we have those relationships with, um, with the farms that we work with. That is a, you know, it's great for all that disclosure because I think people really need to know what you're eating and where it's actually coming from. I mean, to really highlight those ideas to fully understand where, where things are actually coming from and kind of the situations, you know, that those products are, are in and where they're, you know, where they're at. You're listening to the beer hour with Jonathan Wakefield. And we're talking to Carolina Quijano of Exquisito Chocolates. What kind of a distribution model do you have now? Like what percentage of your sales are online or in direct to consumer? Uh, well, it's it shifted. It's pivoted, as everyone likes to say. We were pre-COVID very wholesale focused. So worked with a lot of hotels. It was about like a 70% wholesale. So coffee shops, hotels, restaurants, um, corporate. And through the pandemic, uh, since like March of last year, that went away pretty much completely. And we became essentially an online business. And, uh, you know, apparently chocolate was the number one comfort food uh, last year. Thank goodness for that, because uh, we were able to to really, you know, go after that. And, um, you know, I kind of went hard on 
digital marketing and uh, really trying to go after not just being tied down to, you know, little Havana where we're at, but we do it nationwide and even international, we, we send out stuff. So really going after um, that as a way to stay afloat, but also to grow another part of the business. Um, So that's still a big core of, uh, of who we are. It's about um, 70% of our business right now. Um, and looking over the next year to to have our wholesale come back slowly. And uh, we have a, a few big things that are coming over the next few months um, that uh, we'll be able to be in uh, a big grocery store um, over the next few months. So that will be hopefully very good for us. But uh, but yeah, that that's we've completely changed um, our business and even our physical space has had to transform itself because we're catering to a completely different market now. And as opposed to sending out, you know, 500 pounds of chocolate and bricks, now we're sending out, you know, small chocolate bars at a time. So it's I've just had to adapt and kind of quickly react and. Uh, you know, we, a big part of our revenue used to come from like tours and like experiences because people love to come on site and that pretty much went away. And it's like a completely different business than it was 16 months ago. And I envision that in another 16 months, it's going to, that's going to shift as well, just because of uh, the nature of of surviving this, but uh, also adapting to, to everything. I mean, the more we speak, the more similarities that keep getting drawn up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the pandemic hit and we had to do a full like 180. Like we did zero online sales and like mm-hmm. we, we were only, I think, 30% distribution. Oh, and, no, we, we mm-hmm. did all online sales. Well, right. But I'm saying like before we did like yeah. zero online yeah. sales and we did and like. And it was all distro. And it was like a. Thirty percent distro and seventy percent out of the tap room, and then when the pandemic mm-hmm. hit, it was a hundred percent distro. And, but and, in cans, know, we yeah. could not sell kegs anymore because mm-hmm. the accounts weren't open, no. so there was no way for people to top it. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, and then of course now we're shifting again. Yeah, you know we're coming out of this. We're trying to draw some more people back in, but that's a slow march. But I think, like you said, in another sixteen months, it might be shifted again. So like it's just this ride that we're on that we're. It's how you're surviving it, really, and how you're exactly. adapting to the model and keep changing. So, do I sell online, like nationwide, or are you limited to certain states um, with the legalities of it? We are limited to certain states by distribution models. Like we have to sign with a distribute, you know, like with a distributor in every single state. I mean, we can go to fifty states, but we don't have the quantity of product to do that. But like, we're very picky about which states we choose mm-hmm. to go into and which would be the best, you know, distributors in those states to work with. Florida also doesn't allow us legally to ship beer to direct to consumer. So no. that was very difficult for us as yeah. well. Yeah. So um, in full disclosure, you know, we've been using your cacao nibs for a few years and we love it in the beers that we use. Have you had any of the beers that we've we've used the cacao nibs in? I mean, are, do you, what is your thoughts on craft beer actually? So, you know, my love for craft beer actually came as a result of this, of working in craft chocolate, because I have to say that prior to this, um, a few years back, I was not a beer drinker and it was getting exposed and working with other folks that, you know, try this. And I was like, oh, I actually enjoy this. Uh, So it's funny because my love of chocolate and my love of beer kind of came around the same time where... And it came from more of like working with folks like you guys and seeing what goes behind it and all the similarities between what we do. And um, that's been my, um, I guess, development as a, as a craft beer enjoyer. I would guess that, you know, Hershey's is to artisan chocolate, kind of like Budweiser is to craft beer. What would you say to our listeners around the country who have only experienced mass-produced chocolate? So we're actually legally chocolate. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is real. This is not. Right. I mean, if if we have to boil it down to that, we're actually chocolate. 
Um, I, I don't know what Budweiser is, um, but uh, not really. <laughs> I'm beer. sure you no. have thoughts. <laughs> But, you know, by definition, um, you know, chocolate in, in the U.S. has to have somewhere around like 15% cacao nibs, uh, oh, wow. between 15 and 20%. That's why our standards in the U.S. are pretty not great. Um, they don't even have that. Wow. So, you know, it's not tip- – a lot of times chocolate, and thanks to Hershey's, gets this horrible rap. It's like, what's well, candy and it's bad for you and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like – yeah, because what you're eating is palm oil and sugar. Um, so I always challenge people next time we're at the grocery store, flip over Hershey's bar and see what that first ingredient is. Because by law, that's the ingredient that's most used in it. It's not going to be cacao. Mm. Um, it's probably third down on the list. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it's fine. Like, I'm, I mean, I am a snob, but it doesn't mean just because you like our chocolate, you don't have to like Hershey's, um, you know, but it's not real chocolate. Um, if, for those of us who grew up on it, there's a nostalgia behind it. There's just something that you're used to, but it's candy. Um, and right. it's something completely different than what we're making, you know, in our chocolate, in our typical, like most common selling bars, it's somewhere between a 65 to 73% of the ingredients in there are cacao. And the rest is organic cane sugar. That's it. Like there's nothing else. There's no lecithin. We're not adding any, preservatives, anything else. No to mask. Yeah. No fillers, yeah. you know, the producer chocolate bar is extremely, extremely expensive. And there's a reason why palm oil and white sugar is the first stuff that we eat in there. And, right. um, that's basically what you're just eating. Oh. So the root of where the cacao comes from in terms of the sourcing of it, the quality, uh, typically when I go on the farms, there's like different grades of cacao and they'll be like, well, this is the top one. This is what we're going to put in your bags. And then you get all the way down and it's like moldy cacao pods and oh. all this stuff that you don't necessarily want. There's a market for that. And that's why they blend everything. That's why they over roast stuff. Right. So, you know, well, that's what you're eating. Uh, it's kind of like seeing the hot dog being made. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody can now imagine exactly why that is then. <laughs> yep. Exactly. I, ha- I have one last question for you. Um in 2012, sure. researchers mm-hmm. in the UK surveyed about 1500 adults and found that 52% of women said they choose chocolate over sex. As a chocolatier, <laughs> where do you come down on that question? Uh chocolate never lets you down, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we'll end it with that. That is Radio Gold. Thank you so much Carolina for being on the show. Sure. It was great. Yes, thank you very much. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank Thank you. you. Have a good one. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Jay Gray and Carolina Quijano, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thanks for listening. We're here each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturday at 8 p.m. and Sunday at 1 p.m. You can also find repeat episodes on SiriusXM app. Remember, people, the thirst is real.